as we continue our walk through Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. Please turn there. This morning, we will be looking at the middle paragraph of chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Well, the Apostle Paul made sure in the first three verses of this chapter that the Corinthian believers heard that any spiritual gift or act of sacrifice doesn't mean a thing if that person does not have and demonstrate genuine agape love. Last Sunday, we we saw how agape is so different from the other words used in Greek for love. It does not mean some kind of sentimental love, having a pleasant feeling about something or someone. Since we have one English word that can mean almost anything, when most people say, I love you, what is so often meant is, I love me and I want you. In other words, most people in our culture think of love as being some form of warm feeling or affection, attraction, romance, or sexual desire. Usually at the root of all this is some kind of selfishness that is really mainly interested in fulfilling the desire to feel something or to get something that we want. Agape should also not be confused with philia, which is close friendship or brotherly love. And it certainly should not be confused with eros, which is romantic or sexual love. Eros is not even found in the New Testament. What agape does mean, well, the best definition is actually the rest of 1 Corinthians 13, which we will still be in today and next week. And as John explains in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 4, agape is God's holy love for sinners like us, who can do nothing to earn his love, and who are utterly unworthy of the love that we do receive. It's a sacrificial, self-giving love that demands something of us. Love that is more concerned with giving than receiving. It's the sacrifice of ourselves for the sake of others even for others who may care nothing at all for us and who may even hate us. So it's not a feeling, first and foremost, but a determined act of our will. It's the willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above our own. And as we'll see, it has no place for pride or vanity or arrogance or self-seeking or self-glory. It's a choice that we are commanded to make even on behalf of our enemies. Now, in our passage today, Paul defines 15 aspects of agape love, and it's in a beautiful and very thorough way. Notice that instead of just saying what agape love is, Paul also includes what agape does. So if you're able, would you please stand 
as I read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. So in order to help his readers understand agape so they can better see how to live this way, we're given 15 facets of this kind of love. And when we go over each one, don't miss the point that this is a picture of our Savior who first loved us this way. There are seven positive descriptions and eight negative descriptions in the following verses. Starting off in verse 4, love is patient and kind. So the first description is patient. And this is a common New Testament word, and it's used most of the time to refer to being patient with people, not circumstances or events. It means to be forbearing, to take or put up with the offenses and injuries you receive from other people. So what it looks like is not giving in to vengeance and anger or retaliation. This means a willingness to take someone's unpleasant character traits and behavior in stride and to respond with enduring patience without retaliating. One commentator notes that in Greek culture, patience and not retaliating was seen as a weakness. Aristotle taught that the great Greek virtue was refusal to tolerate insult and injury and instead to strike back in retaliation for the slightest offense. Folks, we've just reverted to ancient Greece. That's where our culture is. And one of the apostles who probably experienced more patience from the Lord than any of the others, can you guess who? Peter wrote in his second letter, Something that you need to put in context, remembering what he experienced himself. He writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Think he knew what he was talking about? Think of all the times that Jesus taught about being patient and forbearing, not returning evil for evil. And there were many. And then how he took the insults and punishment all the way to the cross. Because he knew that what he had to do to redeem our souls 
from the slavery of sin was take the insults and die in our place. The second description here, and actually the next word in this pair, is a verb, and it appears only here in the New Testament. Being kind. Now the noun, kindness, is used many times by Paul in his letters. While patience will take anything from others, kindness will give anything to others. That is a great way to remember this. Being kind means to be useful or serving or gracious. And it's active goodwill towards other people. In other words, it's not just thinking about being kind to people. It's actually being kind to them. And again, God loves us like this. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? He gets it all in there. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Next in chapter 4, the third description, love does not envy. And the fourth, or boast. The first thing to notice is that envy and love are mutually exclusive. In fact, all eight negatives in this paragraph are mutually exclusive with agape. Love does not envy. Also, envy, or sometimes uh, translated as jealousy, could either be, I want what someone else has, or it could also be, I wish they didn't have what they have. Either I want what somebody else has, or I don't want them to have what they have. That second one is really desiring evil for somebody else. And that is serious wrong. In fact, there's an Great illustration of this in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Remember the story in 1 Kings 3 about King Solomon carrying a case in which two women staying in the same house each had a newborn son. One woman's son died in the, in the evening and she exchanged her dead child with the other woman's live child. So that in the morning, the mother whose child was alive found a dead baby next to her that she knew was not hers. Well, they took their case to court. The presiding judge was none other than King Solomon. They each claimed the living child was their own, word against word. Solomon, finally, fed up, ordered a sword to be brought in and told the women that the living child would be cut in half and each woman would get half. The true mother cried out for the child to be spared, even if it meant losing possession of him to the wicked other woman. 
The false mother would rather have had the baby killed than for the true mother to have him. That is a person who wished someone else didn't have what they had. A person who desired evil for someone else. We all know that the battle against envy or jealousy is hard for all of us. But each of us in the body of Christ must learn and grow to be glad for someone else's gift or success or talent or whatever. Envy or jealousy is a very harmful sin. And it affects many people besides the one harboring it. And there's injunctions and proverbs about this everywhere. One of them is Proverbs 27, verse 4. This is probably the most in-your-face one. Listen carefully. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy or envy? That cuts deep. One of the strongest admonitions about jealousy comes from James in the New Testament. In chapter 3, he writes, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. We get the English word zeal from this word, which means to have a strong desire. We also know that we see a good kind of strong desire in the Bible, also using the word zeal, but that's not what Paul is writing about here. It's pretty clear what Paul is dealing with. The fourth description, description, again, boasting and love are mutually exclusive. Love does not boast. And this is the only place this word is found in the New Testament. You know, my dad and his generation would have called this kind of person a windbag. That great generation... Many of those men, most of them in World War II, they had some great, nice ways of saying bad things about people. (laughs) The general idea here is, of course, bragging, which is the other side of jealousy or envy. How? Well, as we've already seen, this is very interesting. Jealousy or envy is when I want what someone else has. Well, what's boasting? Boasting is trying to make somebody else jealous of what I have. I never thought of it about that, uh, that way before. Boasting is trying to make someone else jealous of what I have. Jealousy puts somebody else down while boasting builds me up. The negative, this negative trait has become... Obviously, a lot more accepted in our society today than ever before. 
especially as it's wrapped in the personal narcissistic empowerment nonsense that we hear almost every day. Everything is about me. Remember that the Corinthian believers had the reputation, literally, of being spiritual show-offs. The fifth description, it is not, in verse 5, arrogant, and then the sixth is rude. So we see another pairing. The next negative characteristic that is not love is being arrogant, and it's closely related to boasting, of course. Paul has already addressed the Corinthians' arrogance in this letter several times. The most direct being in chapter 4, verse 18, where he writes, Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. In other words, they were behaving like they already knew everything and were spiritual giants. But they weren't following Scripture, and they were favoring certain individuals more than others, actually undermining Paul's apostolic authority. And thought... But he was not going to come back and deal with us. Paul noted that. In chapter 8, verse 1, Paul wrote, This knowledge, meaning this knowledge that you all claim to have, puffs up, which is the word for arrogance. But love, he says, builds up. The difference between puffs up and builds up. In other words, without love... Knowledge can easily degenerate into obnoxious arrogance. With love, the opposite happens. Knowledge is valued and treasured as an asset. The sixth description, what does it mean to be rude? This means to act unbecomingly. I can't remember the last time I've actually heard that word. Can, can you guys? It's, we don't hear that word anymore. But that's what it means to act unbecomingly or unseemly. Dishonoring others is the point. It's improper or inappropriate behavior, and it could cover any situation. In other words... It's behavior that shows a disregard for those people around you. So it comes from a lack of concern or respect or, guess what, love for the people around you. How had the Corinthians displayed this rudeness to one another? The way they selfishly made the Lord's Supper love feast a mockery? By hoarding food and keeping others from, eating, from getting any at all? The way they treated one another in contempt? By dividing into factions? They even were suing one another? And we still haven't gotten to the chaotic selfishness displayed in their worship service. That's the whole next chapter. A good way to summarize not being rude is to see love as being in a very simple terms, gracious behavior. And we also must recognize something that is a danger to all of us, or each of us, and that is that many a Christian 
has actually forfeited the opportunity of being heard when witnessing or proclaiming Christ because they behave rudely or ungraciously in the process. Those of you that have been able to come to Sunday school and, hit, and watch these incredible videos, I was just thinking I wish we had heard that when I was in college. What we heard was out-argue everybody. Here's all the facts. Just let them have it. This is an entirely different, and can we say, yes, we can, a more biblical approach to what we're seeing displayed in those videos. You guys that aren't coming are really missing something special. The fifth, in verse 5, excuse me, we see the seventh characteristic or description of agape. It does not insist on its own way. So what is this saying? This is basically another way of saying that agape love is not selfish. One commentator had this illustration that really hits this point. So here it is. The following inscription that I'm going to share in just a second was found on a tombstone in a small English village. It said, as a poet, somebody obviously knew the guy, here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared, nothing, cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. You know how English people are always kind of noted as being never saying the truth and kind of skirt? That guy must not have really been English, I don't think. <laughs> Maybe Scottish. In contrast to that, a plain tombstone in another courtyard in London reads this. Sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, his heart to God. What a contrast. Matthew 20, 28, remember this is a picture of our Savior. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The eighth description in verse 5 also, into well, it starts in verse 5. It is not irritable or resentful. Irritable is number 8. Now, other English translations say something different. So those of you that aren't using the English Standard Version might want to look. Many times it's, it's translated as being provoked or easily provoked or easily angered. This kind of irritation comes from things done against us or that are personally offensive. And already we're all sinking a little in our chairs. Paul is not addressing the kind of irritation that arises from being angered by the things that anger God. What would those things be? Like heresy or immorality or misuse of spiritual gifts? or some of the cares and disruptions and tragedies we see in our world. He did not become irritated 
or provoked or angry at those who beat him, our Savior, jailed him, or lied about him. In other words, we have to learn not to be easily irritated by things done against us or that are personally offensive. Is that not the toughest lesson in life or one of the biggest? Love does not quickly, get quickly irritated or angry or provoked when someone else gets a privilege or recognition that we want for ourselves because it's our right and we didn't get it, they did. Putting our supposed rights before a loving concern for others comes straight from self-centeredness and thus it's not love, it's lovelessness. The loving person is more concerned about doing what's right for someone else and helping where possible than getting their own rights or what we think is due us. The only cure for self-centeredness is, what do you think? Focusing your attention on the well-being of others. And you can't do that without seeing Jesus doing exactly that by coming into our world to live the perfect life demanded of us so that he could die in our place. And then being so grateful to him for what he has done for me as an undeserving sinner that we can trust him to change us from the inside out as we decide to live and know and love and serve him. Is it true that once you figure this out, the whole rest of your life living as a believer is learning this over and over and over and better and better and better? Yes, this was what life becomes about. And many times I roll over at night and go, okay, again? I got this already and then the next thought but it didn't stick very well pray again run to me pray about it put it into action what's the ninth description here the ninth out of 15 is love is not resentful and this is expressed in other translations very specifically as a way not to be resentful. And look, what is it? Not keeping a record of wrong suffered. Just in case you're wondering, getting older and forgetting everything, for some reason we don't forget this one. Are you keeping a list of wrongs that you've experienced. It's not only wrong, but it is unhealthful. Little children are just naturally able to do this too. How can I say that? Because when I was a little kid, I was so incensed over all the privileges that a little brother had that I didn't They were treated differently. My rights were getting stepped on. That I somehow heard something about kids 
making these time capsules and burying them at their schools. And I thought, I'm burying a time capsule so that when I get older, I can prove that all this was right because nobody's listening to me now and nobody cares about my rights now. So I buried this list of stuff in a jar outside the back of my house. Thank goodness there's another house there now that probably destroyed the jar and everything in it forever and ever. Does that ring a bell for anyone? And you guys are going, yeah, I know. And you're the person that keeps a calendar with every day what you've done since 1972 when I got really serious about Marty Joe. Yeah, I keep records, and that one it was a bad start as a kid. But we all, it's amazing how fast our rights can get abused and our expectations not met, and it gets seared into us, and we can recall that just like that. Well, we've got to do something about that, don't we? There's nothing that will warp our hearts and minds faster than feeding this particular monster. You might as well send any happiness that you have had away in a box. Send it as far as you can because you'll never see it again if you harbor this kind of stuff. Romans 4.8, Paul writes, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, in Christ, God was recon- in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of re- reconciliation. Once sin is placed under the blood of Christ, there is no more record of it. It is blotted out. In God's heavenly record, the only entry after the name of his redeemed is righteous. Why? Because we are counted righteous in Christ. Christ's righteousness is placed our credit. We wear it. It's the clothes we what will be we will be clothed in for eternity. No other record exists. And we know that life means living out day by day what is true of us by Christ's sacrifice. And we know that we still have abiding sin and that it will be with us until the day we die. But we should see some evidence of God changing our hearts and our behavior where that difference can become evident. And in Acts 3, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be, in the words, are blotted out. Because of what Christ has done for us, we then are able to forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ 
forgave you. That's our calling right there. Because of what God has done for us in Christ, that's the reason that we forgive each other. In verse 6, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Obviously, a lot of these are similar. This is very similar to the principle of putting off and putting on that you probably heard of before as far as how we walk. In Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. But the verb here is rejoice. Don't rejoice at wrongdoing. So the tenth characteristic that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing amounts to making what is wrong appear right. And in our world today, this is standard operating procedure. If there is any sense of values, compromising is the first and easiest step especially as every person is expected to set their own standards and belief system, and it should be just as good as anybody else's. It can be in our face, this kind of rejoicing at wrongdoing, and therefore it can be brazen and shocking, or it can be silent in the sense of consenting to wrongdoing. Most dangerous of all is rejoicing in situations in which the behavior that we know is sinful is instead seen by most as not that big a deal. And just what everybody does. And this is especially true if it's a Christian who themselves just expects everyone around them to go along with them and not ever say anything. Yeah, it's wrong, but dot, dot, dot. And we see this happening more now than probably any time that I can ever remember. Then on the other hand, back to the positives. In verse 11, the description is that love rejoices with the truth. And this involves the constant attempt. Hear that constant attempt to discover good and praiseworthy words, thoughts and deeds in and from a person. Love searches out the truth and rejoices when it's found and triumphs over wrong. And yes, it is discouraging these days. Because sometimes you have to look really hard to find any evidence at all. It doesn't focus, though, on the wrongs of others. Or let everyone know about someone else's faults. In Philippians 4, 8 and 9, Paul fleshes out how to think so that you can better recognize what to rejoice in. There was a Christian artist that had a song on this one passage, these two verses, uh, somewhere in my past when the girls were little. And it played over and over and over and over. And Marty could probably still stand up and sing it without even thinking about it. But I'm going to read it. (laughs) Finally, brothers, you know what I'm saying, what what this is. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And there we've got it. <clears throat> Paul finishes this list of 15 characteristics of love by identifying four what you could really call summary qualities that build on each other and highlight the positive force of love. And they start in verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. There's a little hyperbole in here. Obviously, all things doesn't mean everything wicked and everything right and everything in between. Let's see what they do mean. Bears all things. The verb to bear here means both to endure and to cover. And a lot of times we don't hear the second part of that definition. As the apostle who denied Christ after Jesus was arrested, as we've said, Peter knew a great deal about being loved by his Lord. And again, in his letter, he writes this admonition to his readers. Above all. Now, Peter had a lot to say, so this got my attention. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. The thirteenth description is believe all things, believes all things. And this refers to the fact that a Christian has faith in God who will work out his divine plan even when all the indicators seem to point in different directions. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Straight your paths does not mean no trouble, no disease, no sick, no anything bothering me. It means you will be walking in God's plan for you, which may be tough, but you'll be in his plan, and that's the goal is not to try to get out of it. Whatever he has for each one of us, whatever he ordains for each one of us is the way God chooses to work, to bring glory to himself. And it is for our good, because no matter what it is, we can grow in our knowledge of him through it. And if you've just been through one of those times, guess what? You will have opportunity as your life continues, if it does, to share that with somebody else who needs to hear it, or maybe many people. What about the 14th? Hopes all things. Paul loves this word. We should too. It appears 19 times in Paul's letters. In the New Testament, it appears 31 times. It's one of, I think, the foundation stones of our whole faith. But it's built on faith. 
It's because of faith in what Christ accomplished for us. This is the patient quality that waits for the positive results promised in Christ. Now, I've shared before how not only did I bury time capsules as a kid, I also was the one that any time we went on a hike in the mountains, in the Rockies, or wherever we were spending vacation, the family takes off together, and you know what happens. The little boy takes off and can't be caught, so everybody's hoping that there's not something up there that, you know, can eat you. Patience is not one of my natural virtues. And yet, after a couple of decades of having things that were at near the center of my life withdrawn or taken away or slowed down or not even remembered, God has a way of bringing these things to view, does he not? God, there's never a, a plateau at the end of whatever you expect of life where you just coast. Because God loves us too much to let us coast. And it's worth the lessons. So, This is the patient quality that waits for the positive results promised in Christ. It's the opposite of pessimism. And don't come up here afterwards and say, look, in this list, there are seven positive things, but there's eight negative things. You haven't read the first first phrase of the next verse. What is it? Love never ends. Eight, eight. He's not more pessimistic than he is positive. So, we need to realize that. And it's never focused on ourselves, this hope, and our abilities. That's a big one in our day. But it always on God and Christ his son. There is a big difference from hoping in the God who has given you gifts and abilities and then using them to the best of your abilities, trusting him as you go, than just going, I've got it, I've got it, and then trying to make it. Huge difference. We're told in Hebrews 6, 18 through 20, to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That's talking about the surety, the certainty, the acceptable atoning sacrifice accomplished by our Savior. It is a sure deal where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. He is the certainty. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And yeah, there's not much water around here, but there is a lake and there's a few anchors that you've seen. But anchor is a great visual for us to have here. To hold fast to the hope set before us. 
we have this assured and steadfast anchor of the soul. And it's a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul because of what Jesus accomplished. Because of his work, we can completely trust him forever. The last one endures all things. Next verse, love never ends. This one endures forever. They sort of go together. Agape love perseveres and tenaciously holds on through anything and everything in all circumstances. And if you're ever wondering, you have a friend, a neighbor, a relative, a loved one, your spouse, your children, somebody you care about. If you know they're a believer and you see them going through stuff, we can make a list right here, right now, with you and some people that you know. And you see them enduring through it. Why is that? How are they enduring? You ever ask that question? I say it all the time. I don't know how so-and-so has made it through this or keeps walking or wakes up and goes on. You know what? If you're a believer, it's because somebody else has got you. And this kind of love is a picture of that. It endures forever. Whatever is thrown at it. This kind of love endures forever because that's the way Jesus loves us. A simple way to say this, he has us. Who would you rather have you? Don't look at me. He has us. So why skip and go to this and this and this and this and this and this and this instead of going... Straight to the one who has you. You have access to his throne of grace. Let's pray. Oh God, we have had our minds and our hearts expanded by, again, looking at this paragraph, which is really probably very familiar to almost everyone of us in here. But Lord, it sure helps to read it slowly and to ponder on how it applies to us in this situation or that situation, to know that this is what you have us still here for. One of the main reasons is to build these qualities in us as we seek to obey you and let you change our hearts or acknowledge that you are and then respond the right way. We thank you that your purposes are so beyond our own and that you've given us the privilege of knowing you in a world that does not. And we pray that you would not only help us endure, but you would also encourage us with the privileges that you've given us to proclaim the truth about you as we trust you to make that more, those truths more and more apparent in our daily lives as we learn to love this way. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand up for our benediction? Did you ever think about what Paul's life was like? Murdering Christians. Visibly seeing the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and giving a call 
And man, he grabbed it. He knew that he didn't deserve it. And then he spent the rest of his life on some really small ships and boats traveling around the Mediterranean in some very hostile places. Yes, he can write about hope. He says this in Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, you may abound in love. Amen. You're dismissed.